Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, today we're actually going to be taking a slight break from our previous um, readings from uh, the Best of Money Can't Buy, largely because I actually loaned out my copy um, to a friend of mine who's uh, now checking it out. Uh, today we're going to be reading from another book that I got permission to read from. It's called Addicted to War. Uh, I actually took a copy of this and uh, gave it to my friends who went to uh, Venus, Florida with me. And um, in addition to that, I gave one to Roxanne and Jock, and uh, they loved it so much they ended up ordering like several copies. Uh, if you look on the uh, Amazon link that's basically connected to this uh, broadcast, you will see a picture of a guy sweating with a bunch of guns and weapons in his arms, and it's basically this book, Addicted to War. Uh, written and basically illustrated uh, and written by Joel Andreas. Uh, I've actually spoken to the author of this book, and uh, it looks like it's basically a really good um, addition to the um, movement's ideas on how to deal with uh, militarism and uh, the capitalistic pursuit of war profiteering. So, in any case, um, today I have a panel once again. Um, some of whom obviously you've heard, one of which you have not. Uh, so first of all, I'm just going to have Chibi introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Chibi. I'm from Missouri and part of the Zeitgeist movement. Okay. Uh, the next up would be Emmanuel. Hi, I'm Emmanuel. I'm from Michigan. I'm a longtime friend of Neil's, and um, I'm just uh, just around. <laughs> <laughs> You're also originally from Romania, correct? Yeah, that's correct. All right, and finally, uh, we have Thunder, uh, another fellow radio host in the Venus Project movement. So shout out, Thunder. Hello, everybody. It's Thunder. How are you doing? This is uh, still still daytime out here in uh, Southern California or north of Southern California. So thanks for having me on, Neil. All right, thanks a lot. Well, um in addition to talking about this book today, I made kind of a bold move in the political spectrum. As many of you know, I was a libertarian activist involved with the Libertarian Party. Um, in addition to that, uh, in addition to that, I'm also a member of the National Committee of the Boston Tea Party. Um, and Recently, after looking at the Boston Tea Party's platform, I realized that the possibility existed that I could form a caucus, basically a political movement within the party, to uh, spread awareness of the concepts of the Venus Project. Um, and uh, I'm going to be, I actually started a thread about this on the forum, and everybody who is on this call today, <laughs> who is actually an American citizen, uh, was able to participate. But basically, all I'm asking people to do is to join the Boston Tea Party. It doesn't cost anything. You can still hold whatever political affiliations you want. Um, and if you, you know, you could go to the blog post there. Uh, it's at bostontea.us. So Boston is in the place, tea is in the drink.us. You can go there and join the party for free, read my blog post about the formation of the Resource-Based Economy Caucus, and um, basically drop a line there uh, in the comment box to uh, show your support. So, 
And um, that was basically all I wanted to say on that, other than the fact that B-Radio is still looking for donations for this month. And that is basically it. We're going to go ahead and get started with the book. Um, if my panelists want to go ahead and mute themselves so that uh, the sound quality will be clear, that would be great. One second. Looks like my chat was giving me trouble. Pardon the brief intrusion. Not sure why that happened, but... All right. Here we go. So, um, Addicted to War by Joel Andreas. Um, this is a comic book, so I'm in some cases going to have to kind of read it um, from the perspective of the characters involved. But uh, um, basically starts with uh, our story begins... Actually, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and read the author's preface. I wrote the first edition of Addicted to War after the U.S. war against Iraq in 1991. The major news media had been reduced to wartime cheerleaders, and the people in this country had largely been shielded from the ugly realities of the war. My aim was to present information difficult to find in the mainstream media and to explain America's extraordinary predilection to go to war. Ten years later, events compelled me to update the book. The September 11th attacks provided an opportunity for George W. Bush to declare war on terrorism, which in practice turned out to be an endless binge of war making. The second edition was published in early 2002, following the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. The Bush administration then turned to preparing for a new war against Iraq. A thin rhetorical veneer about combating terrorism and the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction hardly concealed its underlying aim, to impose a new U.S. client regime in the Middle East and assure control over a country that is the world's second largest known oil reserves. As the present edition goes to the press, the U.S. is occupying Afghanistan and, and Iraq. In an effort to quell armed resistance, the U.S. military is taking harsh punitive measures against the civilian populations of both countries, feeding a spiral of violence that has repercussions around the world and is placing us all in greater danger. This book chronicles over two centuries of U.S. foreign wars. beginning with the Indian Wars. During this time, America's machinery of war has grown into a behemoth that dominates our economy and society and extends around the globe. Okay, sorry about that, folks. Although the Bush administration has been particularly bellicose, this country's addiction to war began long before Bush came to power and will undoubtedly survive his departure. The costs of this growing addiction are now being felt more acutely at home. Soldiers and their families are paying the heaviest price, but everyone is affected. Skyrocketing military spending is contributing to huge government deficits, causing sharp cuts of domestic programs, including education, health care, housing, public transport, and environmental protection. At the same time, the war on terrorism is being used as an excuse to step up police surveillance and erode our civil liberties. I hope this book will spur reflection and debate about militarism and encourage creative action to change our direction. It's impossible to thank all the people who have contributed to the creation of this book here. 
Instead, I will mention only three, my mother, Carol Andreas, who introduced me to anti-war activities, my father, Carl Andreas, who first encouraged me to write the book, and Frank Dorrell, whose tireless promotion made a new edition both possible and irresistible. Um, I'm actually uh, in contact with Frank Dorrell and plan to have him on my show at some point in the near future, along with the author, Joel Andreas. Uh, recently, Roxanne Meadows has made an effort to contact Joel Andreas, but apparently he is in China. He is a professor of sociology, so I'm thinking that he might just be on the same page as us. Okay, our story begins on a Friday afternoon. Yow, look at all the money the government took out of my paycheck. Later that evening, Mom, they want you to help at a bake sale so my school can buy toilet paper. First no books and now no toilet paper? Do they have anything at your school? At the next school board meeting, I'm sorry, the local tax base is declining and we get very little help from the federal government. There's just no money. What do they do with all the taxes I pay? A huge part of the money the IRS takes out of your paychecks goes to support the military. Military spending adds up to more than half of the federal government's annual discretionary spending. Federal discretionary budget 2000 fiscal, 2004 fiscal year, military spending was 51%, everything else was 49%, including education spending, which was a mere 7%. No wonder there's no toilet paper. The United States maintains the largest and most powerful military in history. U.S. warships dominate the oceans. Its missiles and bombers can strike at targets on every continent, and hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops are stationed overseas. Every few years, the U.S. sends soldiers, warships, and warplanes to fight in distant countries. Many countries go to war, but the U.S. is unique in both the size and power of its military and its propensity to use it. The cost of being a military superpower and waging wars around the world is high. Because hundreds of billions of dollars are funneled to the Pentagon every year, the government skimps on providing for basic needs of people here at home. Cutbacks in social programs have caused far more devastation in this country than any foreign army ever has. Foreign wars also bring bloody retaliation against the U.S., such as the terrorist attacks that took the lives of thousands of people at the Pentagon and the World Trade Center. Despite the high cost of money and lives, the government seems determined to keep going to war, putting us all in harm's way. But the costs of the U.S. foreign wars are more than simply economic. They include the lives of the soldiers who never come home. But why is the United States always getting into wars? Good question. Two centuries ago, the United States was a collection of 13 small colonies on the Atlantic coast of North America. Today, it dominates the globe in a way that even the most powerful of past empires could not have imagined. The path to world power has not been peaceful. Chapter 1, Manifest Destiny. The American revolutionaries who rose up against King George in 1776 spoke eloquently about the right of every nation to determine its own destiny. Quote, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bonds which have connected them with another and assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Thomas Jefferson from the Declaration of Independence, 1776. Unfortunately, after they won the right to determine their own destiny, they thought they should determine everyone else's, too. The leaders of the newly independent colonies believed that they were preordained to rule all of North America. This was so obvious to them they called it manifest destiny. Quote, we must march from ocean to ocean. It is the destiny of the white race. Representative Giles of Maryland, meaning a congressman at the time. 
This manifest destiny soon led to genocidal wars against the Native American peoples. The U.S. Army ruthlessly seized their land, driving them west and slaughtering any who resisted. During the century that followed the American Revolution, the Native American peoples were defeated one by one, their lands were taken, and they were confined to reservations. The number of dead has never been counted, but the tragedy did not end with the dead. The Native people's way of life was devastated. Quote, I can still see the butchered men, women and children lying heaped and scattered all along the crooked gulch as plain as when I saw them with the eyes still young. And I can see that something else died there in the bloody mud and was buried in the blizzard. A people's dream died there. It was a beautiful dream. The nation's hoop is broken and scattered. Black Elk, spiritual leader of the Lakota people and survivor of the Wounded Bee Massacre in South Dakota. By 1848, the United States had seized nearly half of Mexico's territory. In Congress, the war against Mexico was justified with speeches about the glory of expanding Anglo-Saxon democracy, but in truth it was the southern slave owners' thirst for land and the lure of western gold that inspired these speeches. General Zachary Taylor ordered scores of U.S. soldiers executed for refusing to fight in Mexico. With their domain now stretching from coast to coast, the Manifest Destiny crowd began to dream of an overseas empire. Economic factors drove these ambitions. Colonel Charles Denby, a railroad magnate and an ardent expansionist, argued, quote, Our condition at home is forcing us to commercial expansion. Day by day, production is, seeding, is exceeding home consumption. We are after markets, the greatest markets in the world, end quote. Calls for empire were echoing through the halls of Washington. Quote, I firmly believe that when any territory outside the present territorial, territorial limits of the United States becomes necessary for our defense or essential for our commercial development, we ought to lose no time in acquiring it. Senator Orville Platt of Connecticut, 1894. To become a world power, the U.S. built a world-class navy. A gung-ho Theodore Roosevelt was put in charge of it. Quote, I should welcome almost any war, for I think this country needs one. Theodore Roosevelt, 1897. He didn't have long to wait. The next year, taking a fancy to several Spanish colonies, including Cuba and the Philippines, the U.S. declared war on Spain. Rebel armies were already fighting for independence in both countries, and Spain was on the verge of defeat. Washington declared that it was on the rebel side, and Spain quickly capitulated. But the U.S. soon made it clear that it had no intention of leaving. Quote, the Philippines are ours forever, and just beyond the Philippines are China's limit, illimitable markets. The Pacific is our ocean. Senator Albert Beveridge of Indiana, 19,000. And for the Senator, the Pacific was only the beginning. Quote, the power that rules the Pacific is the power that rules the world. That power is and forever, will forever be the American Republic. Elaborate racist theories were invented to justify colonialism, and these theories were adopted enthusiastically in Washington. I'm going to pause for a second. Does anybody else remember a regime that used, used elaborate racist theories to justify things they were doing? Quote, we are the ruling race of the world. We will not renounce our past and the mission of our race. I'm sorry, our part in the mission of our race. Trustee under God of the civilization of the world. He has marked us as his chosen people. He has made us adept in government that we may administer government among savage and senile peoples. Senator Albert Beveridge, again. But the Filipinos didn't share the views of Senator Beveridge and his buddies. 
They fought the new invaders just as they had fought the Spanish. The U.S. subjugated the Philippines with brute force. U.S. soldiers were ordered to burn and kill all, and they did. By the time the Filipinos were defeated, 600,000 had died. I'm here looking at a picture now of U.S. soldiers standing on the bones of Filipinos who died in the war. The, the pile of bones is literally probably about 10 to 20 feet tall. There's a bunch of soldiers standing on it. It's a really grisly picture, and it looks like something from the Holocaust. The Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam were made into U.S. colonies in 1898. Cuba was formally given its independence, but along with it, along with it the Cubans were given the Platt Amendment, which stipulated that the U.S. Navy would operate a base in Cuba forever, that the U.S. Marines would intervene at will, and that Washington would determine Cuba's foreign and financial policies. During the same period, the U.S. overthrew Hawaii's Queen Lilikalani and transformed these unspoiled Pacific Islands into a U.S. Navy base surrounded by Dole and Del Monte, Pel uh, Del Monte plantations. In 1903, after Theodore Roosevelt became president, he sent gunboats to secure Panama's separation from Colombia. The Colombian government had refused, has refused Roosevelt's terms for building a canal. They won't sell it. I'll just take it. Then Uncle Sam began sending his Marines everywhere. The Marines went to China, Russia, North Africa, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Most people don't know that that's actually what that song is referring to. But uh, troops marched in Siberia during the U.S. invasion of Russia, 1918. Between 1898 and 1934, the Marines invaded Cuba four times, Nicaragua five times, Honduras seven times, the Dominican Republic four times, Haiti twice, Guatemala once, Panama twice, Mexico three times, and Colombia four times. In many countries, the Marines stayed on as an occupying army, sometimes for decades. When the Marines finally went home, they typically left the countries they had occupied in the hands of a friendly dictator, armed to the teeth to suppress his own people. Hold on a second. Behind the Marines came legions of U.S. business executives, ready not only to sell their goods, but also to set up plantations, drill oil wells, and stake out mining claims. The Marines returned when called upon to enforce slave-like working conditions and put down strikes, protests, and rebellions. Sound familiar? Uh, they use an example here, Standard Oil, United Fruit, Domino Sugar, Anaconda Copper. Another quote, I accept responsibility for active intervention to secure for our capitalist opportunity for profitable investments, end quote. President William Howard Taft, 1910. I believe that's also the president who signed the uh, Federal Reserve Act. I could be wrong. A reporter described what took place after U.S. troops landed in Haiti in 1915 to put down a peasant rebellion. American Marines opened fire with machine guns from airplanes on defenseless Haitian villagers, killing men, women, and children in the open marketplaces for sport. 50,000 Haitians were killed. Now they're going to talk about General Smedley Butler, who you may remember was also in Zeitgeist Addendum. General Smedley Butler was one of the most celebrated leaders of these marine expeditions. After he retired, he reconsidered his career, describing it as follows. You can actually get his book on a PDF. Okay. I spent 33 years and four months in an active military service, and during that period I spent most of my time as a high-class muscle man for big business, 
for Wall Street and the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer, a gangster for capitalism. Thus, I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped in the raping of half a dozen Central American republics for the benefit of Wall Street. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1902 through 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. I helped make Honduras right for American fruit companies in 1903. In China and in 1927, I helped see to it that Standard Oil went on its way unmolested. They're showing a picture here of a U.S. Marine officer with the head of Silviano Herrera, one of the leaders of Augusto Sandino's rebel army in Nicaragua in 1930. Pretty grisly. World War I was a horrific battle among the European colonial powers of how to divide up the world. When President Woodrow Wilson decided to enter the fray, he told the American people that he was sending troops to Europe to, quote, make the world safe for democracy. But what Wilson was really after was what he considered to be the United States' fair share of the spoils. Wilson's ambassador to England said rather forthrightly that the U.S. would declare war on Germany because it was, quote, the only way of maintaining our present preeminence trade status. Ambassador W.H. Page, 1917. For this, 130,274 U.S. soldiers were sent to their deaths. Quote, from once again from General Smedley Butler, our boys were sent off to die with beautiful ideals painted in front of them. No one told them that dollars and cents were the real reason they were marching off to kill and die. World, and then, end quote. World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. It wasn't. During World War II, millions of young Americans signed up to fight German fascism and Japanese imperialism but the goals of the strategic planners in Washington were far less admirable. They had imperial ambitions of their own. In October 1940, as German and Japanese troops were marching in Europe and Asia, a group of prominent government officials, business executives, and bankers was convened by the U.S. State Department and the Council of Foreign Relations to discuss U.S. strategy. They were concerned with maintaining an Anglo-American sphere of influence that included the British Empire, the Far East, and the Western Hemisphere. They concluded that the country had to prepare for war and come up with, quote, an integrated policy to achieve military and economic supremacy for the United States. Of course, they didn't say this publicly. If war aims are stated which seem to be concerned solely with Anglo-American imperialism, they will offer little to people in the rest of the world. The interests of other people should be stressed. This would have, to be, this would have a better propaganda effect. From the private memorandum between the Council on Foreign Relations and the State Department, 1941. A horrendous war was concluded with a horrendous event. 200,000 people were killed instantaneously when the U.S. dropped nuclear bombs first on Hiroshima and then on Nagasaki. Tens of thousands more died later from radiation post poisoning. Quote, we pray that God might guide us to use the bomb in his ways and for his purposes. President Harry Truman, 1945. The defeat of Japan had already been assured before the bombs were dropped. Their main purpose was to demonstrate to the world the deadly power of America's new weapon of mass destruction. World War II left the U.S. in a position of political, economic, and military superiority. 
Quote, we must set the pace and assume the responsibility of the majority stockholder in this corporation known as the world. Leo Welch, former chairman of the board, Standard Oil of New Jersey, now Exxon, 1946. The U.S. eagerly assumed responsibility for determining the economic policies and selecting the management of what it considered to be the subsidiary companies that made up the, quote, corporation known as the world. But this didn't go over too well in many nations that considered themselves to be sovereign countries. Imagine that. Boy, I never read any of that stuff in here. A kid picture with a... Uh, he's got a... Uh, American history book in his hands. Chapter 2. The Cold War and the Exploits of the Self-Proclaimed World Policemen. The United States, however, had to contend with the Soviet Union, which had also emerged in the Second World War as a world power. For the next 45 years, the world was caught up in a global turf battle between the two superpowers. The U.S. was always much stronger than its Soviet adversary, but both countries maintained huge military forces to defend and expand their own spheres of influence, the contention between the two powers was called the Cold War because they never directly engaged each other in battle. But the Cold War was marked by plenty of violence in other countries. Typically, the two superpowers lined up on opposite sides of every conflict. For its part, the U.S. moved to expand its own sphere of influence beyond the Americas and the Pacific to include much of the old British, French, and Japanese colonial empires in Asia and Africa. In doing so, it had to deal with the local aspirations that did not always accord with American plans. To put down insubordination, disorder, and disloyalty in, this, in its sphere, the new majority stockholder was also appointed itself the world policeman. During the Cold War, Washington intervened militarily in foreign countries more than 200 times. Korea, 1950-1953. After the World War II, the ambitious plans of the U.S. State Department for Asia and the Pacific were upset completely by revolutions and anti-colonial wars from China to Malaysia. A major confrontation developed in Korea. Washington decided to intervene directly to show that Western military technology could defeat any Asian army. U.S. warships, bombs, and artillery reduced much of Korea to rubble. Over 4,500,000 Koreans died. Three out of four were civilians. 54,000 U.S. soldiers returned home in coffins. But the U.S. military, for all of its technological superiority, did not prevail. After three years of intense warfare, a ceasefire was negotiated. Korea is still divided, and some 40,000 U.S. troops remain in southern Korea to this day, waiting for another war. Dominican Republic, 1965. After a U.S.-backed military coup, Dominicans rose up to demand the reinstatement of the overthrown president, though they had elected in a popular vote. Washington, however, was determined to keep its men in power, no matter who the Dominicans voted for. 22,000 U.S. troops were sent to suppress the uprising. 3,000 people were gunned down in the streets of Santo Domingo. Vietnam, 1964-1973. For 10 years, the U.S. assaulted Vietnam with all the deadly force the Pentagon could muster, trying to preserve a corrupt South Vietnamese regime, which had been inherited from the French colonial empire. The U.S. may have used more firepower in Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia than had been used by all sides in all wars previous in human history. U.S. warplanes dropped 7 million tons of bombs on Vietnam. That's the equivalent of one 350-pound bomb per person. Despite the ferocity of the assault on Vietnam, the U.S. was ultimately defeated by a lightly armed but, but, but determined peasant army. 400,000 tons of napalm were rained down in the tiny country 
Ancient orange and other toxic herbicides were used to destroy millions of acres of farmland and forests. Villages were burned to the ground and their residents massacred. Altogether, two million people died in the Indochina War, most of them civilians killed by U.S. bombs and bullets. Almost 60,000 U.S. soldiers were killed and 300,000 wounded. Lebanon, 1982 to 1983. After the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, the U.S. Marines intervened directly in the Lebanese Civil War, taking the side of Israel and the right-wing Falanga militia, which had just massacred 200,000 Palestinian civilians. 241 Marines paid for this intervention with their lives when their barracks were blown up by a truck bomb. Grenada, 1983. About 110,000 people live on the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada, about the same number that live in Peoria, Illinois. But according to Ronald Reagan, Grenada represented a threat to U.S. security, so he ordered the Pentagon to seize the island and install a new government more to his liking. Quote, a lovely piece of real estate. Secretary of State George Shultz, a Bechtel man, a Bechtel man and a Pentagon fan, in 1983. Libya, 1986. Washington loved King Eldris, the Libyan monarch who happily turned over his country's oil reserves to Standard Oil from next to nothing. It hates Colonel Gaddafi, who threw the king out. In 1986, Reagan ordered U.S. warplanes to bomb the Libyan capital, Tripoli, claiming that Gaddafi was responsible for a bomb attack that at a German disco that killed two U.S. soldiers. It's unlikely that many of the hundreds of Libyans killed or injured in the U.S. bombing raid knew anything about the German bombings. So far, we've recounted wars that have involved U.S. troops, but there are many other wars in which Washington was involved in behind the scenes. I'm actually going to pause there so we can bring our panelists to talk about what we have read so far. All right, guys. Um, Chibi, uh, let's start with you. What did you think of that? Uh, I think it was two chapters we read. That oh, was great. There was some things with World War One that I really uh, a lot a lot of people don't know or don't talk about with World War One that wasn't quite mentioned here. But for instance, um, the invasion of Iraq that happened um, just prior to what we consider the start of World War One, and the German railroad that was built connecting, which would have connected Baghdad to um, what was the, the German city that... Berlin? Yeah, Berlin, right. And, and there's a, a whole story to this that nobody really talks about, nobody seems to know about. I didn't learn about it in my history books. I mean, uh, it's ridiculous. And, and But yeah, this book is great at pointing out some of the things um, that fit in that same category. Okay. Um, it actually looks like we have a caller. I'm going to see if I can bring them on. Uh, caller uh, showing you as one 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 one, but you're on the air. <laughs> Are you there? Hello. Well, I opened up their mic. They must not be at the keyboard or on their phone or whatever. Let me go ahead and close that up. Um, all right. Um, Emmanuel, what comments did you have about this chapter? As a matter of fact, um, in North and South Korea, in the, in the Korean War, um, there was never a, a peace treaty. So if there is a threat 
and U.S. perceives it as a threat. You don't. They, uh, there is no need for Congress approval to go to war because there was uh, never a peace treaty signed. It was just a ceasefire in between North Korea and South Korea, and uh, implicating the United States as well. So, yeah, that's the state of of, um, of affairs in North Korea. And as as far as I could tell right now, that that might be the next uh, the ne- the next major issue as far as the world is seen. Okay. Was that all you wanted to say on that? Uh, yeah, that, that's about it. I mean, uh, Romania was uh, in the Second World War. In the First War, uh, it was initially sided with Germany, and then because of political um, pressure and the status quo had to turn the weapons around and uh, pretty much betray the Germans. So we were, actually my mom, when, when she grew up in uh, Bucharest, uh, she, she was born in 1943, so the wars were still raging. And in 1944, she was actually taking shelters uh, in, in uh, bomb shelters because uh, the U.S. was bombing us, <laughs> which is a pretty interesting, a pretty interesting uh, thought, you know, from my perspective. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons why we have these uh, panelists from around the world because that's information that most people probably don't even know because it's not covered in their in their history. All right, now Thunder, uh, what comments did you have about this chapter? Well, it's you know I, I sit here and I listen as you're reading this, you know, knowing some of the stuff and and learning stuff that I didn't know, and it, it you know it just makes me sick. And number one, my father was actually in the Korean War, but you know, at that, you know, when he was still alive, obviously I didn't know all this stuff, so, you know, I really hadn't had a chance to discuss it from this perspective with him, but, um, you know, we were always, you know, he was always looked upon as, you know, something good, you know, he served served our country, and, you know, after listening to this, it's like, people, <laughs> you know, the, if people understood all this stuff, and could still say that, that that they quote unquote they hate us for our freedom. I think they would change their mind because they don't hate us for our freedom. If they don't hate us for all this stuff, then I don't know what else it could be. It's it's just really sad. Um, so that's really all I had to say. If if you want to go ahead and carry on, it just this stuff is, is just almost like a book like this needs to be required reading for anybody that wants to get in the military to give them a, maybe a moment of pause uh, before they consider moving forward with that decision. Well, I certainly agree with you there, Thunder, and um, a lot of like the different people who rated this book, actually. Uh, this book is endorsed by uh, veterans, uh, basically Veterans for Peace, along with a lot of other peace activist groups, and some of the people who read it suggested that um, it should actually be like required reading in um, like schools. Uh, some of the people who, in, who endorse it, uh, like, for example, Susan Sarandon, um, Colonel James Burkholder, U.S. Army retired. Um, lots of different people have looked into this book, and I'm hoping that more people in the Zeitgeist movement will check it out. Um, my own comments actually come up about the stuff, that the various statements that went on uh, with congressmen uh, talking about, you know, manifest destiny and how they, you know, it was the destiny of the white race and all that other stuff to, to kill all these people. When you think about that, that's really scary. But, I mean, 
the idea that they would always come up with propaganda to find some reason to go into some other war to benefit some other, you know, corporation or another, it's, it's really, it's, you know, the fact that this has been going on as long as it has, I don't think a lot of people know that, um, is that, you know, like the, the whole war on the Native Americans is something that is very rarely really talked about in school, and it doesn't surprise me because it really made our country look bad. Um, and I have to say that... Um, when I was finished reading this book, I remember coming to a conclusion. I was like, wow, you know, we're the bad guys. You know, and it's like I said to, uh, you know, because a lot of this stuff is just kind of older stuff, like in comparison to what the economic hitman was talking about in Zeitgeist. And one of the things about it really was just um, that this has been the, our policy from the very beginning. You know, like uh, to have like, you know, congressmen go on the record, you know, in the congressional record way back when, saying things like that and then just to see it again and then just see how the the corporations have been controlling our government from the very beginning, you know, is, is mind-blowing. Um, and it was definitely a good read, and I hope that more people will check out Addicted to War. Uh, like I said earlier, Roxanne loved the book, and um, I know she's bought a bunch of copies of it to pass out to her friends. It's a really good book on the issue of um, war profiteering. Um, so... Once again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to V-Radio. And um, once again, V-Radio is still looking for donations. Uh, you can donate to me um, on the uh, web, basically on my MySpace, which is linked directly to Blog Talk. Uh, and there, you know, you'll see a chip in on the right. You can click on that. If that is not working, as I've been told some people have been having trouble with it, you can donate at L-E-V-E-E-R at gmail.com is my PayPal. So, Levere at gmail.com. So anyway, uh, bearing that in mind, I'm going to go ahead and continue on with the book if my panelists will mute themselves to quiet up the line, and uh, we will go from there. So far we've recounted wars that have involved U.S. troops, but there are many other wars in which Washington is involved in behind the scenes. After World War II, Britain was compelled to dispose of its colonial empire in the Middle East, the British gave a big chunk of the land known as Palestine to European Jews displaced by the Holocaust. The problem was that there were already people living there. The result has been a five decades of violence and war. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were driven from their homes in what became Israel. The center of the conflict has been the West Bank and Gaza, where Palestinians have lived for decades under Israeli occupation. The U.S. provides crucial political support and billions of dollars a year to aid Israel, including the most advanced weaponry, more than three decades of occupation of the West Bank and Gaza have produced bitter anger not only at Israel but also at the United States. As Palestinian teenagers continue to die in confrontations with the Israeli army, this anger only grows. Hold on just a second. Okay. Um, the U.S. government stands behind its friends, including dictatorial regimes, dictatorial, I'm sorry, I'm never going to say that word, but you get what I meant, suppressing their own people. In the 1970s and 80s, popular insurgencies challenged corrupt dictatorships in Central America. The Pentagon and the CIA armed and trained security forces and death squads that killed hundreds of thousands of people, mostly unarmed peasants, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Don't believe them. They were terrorists disguised as peasants. 
Many of the military officers responsible for the worst atrocities in Central America were trained at the Pentagon's School of the Americas in Georgia. The school trains officers from all over Latin America. Its training manuals recommend torture and summary execution. Its graduates have returned to establish military regimes and terrorize their own people. Today, bloody U.S.-backed counterinsurgency wars continue in Colombia, Mexico, Peru, the Philippines, and other countries. In Colombia, a corrupt U.S.-backed army fights alongside paramilitary forces that have slaughtered whole villages and hundreds of opposition union leaders and politicians. The U.S. has been getting more deeply involved under the cover of the war on drugs, providing billions of dollars of arms used to continue the killing. One second. Let me just ask for the link to the show. Oops, I tried to come on. I'm going to go ahead and paste this. Apologize for the brief thing there. Okay. In the, C- the CIA and the Pentagon have also organized proxy armies to overthrow governments that are not well-liked in Washington. In 1961, for instance, the U.S. warships ferried a small army of mercenaries to Cuba, hoping to reverse the Cuban Revolution. They landed at the Bay of Pigs. It was the fifth U.S. invasion of Cuba, but this time the U.S. was defeated. In the 1970s and the 80s, the CIA was particularly busy financing, training, and arming guerrilla armies around the world. For years, the U.S. backed Portugal's efforts to hang on to its colonies in southern Africa, helping it stave off the independence wars in Angola and Mozambique. In 1975, after a democratic revolution in Portugal, the Portuguese called it quits but Washington didn't. Instead, it teamed up with the Arpithid regime in South Africa to supply a mercenary army to fight the new government in independent Angola. And in the Mozambique, top U.S. and South African politicians and ex-military officers sponsored a particularly brutal bunch of mercenaries who massacred tens of thousands of peasants. All in the name of democracy and freedom. And then, of course, there are the Contras. After the Nicaraguan people overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship of the Somozo family in 1979, the CIA gathered together the remnants of the Somozo's hated National Guard and sent them back to Nicaragua with all the weapons they could carry to loot, burn, and kill. The quote, the Contras are the moral equivalent of our founding fathers. Uh Uh-oh, I think I dropped somebody on the call. Give me a second. Um, nope, everybody's still here. Oh, wait, no, Thunder's not here. Yeah, he said he had an emergency. Oh, okay, I missed that. All right, I'll wait to bring him back on. Then. Anyway, um, Ronald Reagan said, the Contras are the moral equivalent of our founding fathers. Ronald Reagan, 1985. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan to prop up a friendly regime. Soviet occupation met fierce popular resistance. The CIA stepped in to arm, finance, and train the Afghan Mujahideen guerrillas, working closely with the Pakistani and Saudi governments. With generous support from Washington and its allies, Mujahideen defeated the Soviets after a brutal decade-long war. Among the CIA's collaborators in this war was a Saudi named Osama bin Laden. Funny, huh? 
Among the CIA's collaborators, I'm sorry, we already did that. Together with the CIA, bin Laden supplied the Afghan Mujahideen with money and guns to fight the Soviets. The Afghan war helped militarize an international Islamic movement to rid the Muslim world of foreign domination. Ultimately, this movement didn't like the United States any more than the Soviets. At that time, however, the U.S. backers of bin Laden and the Mujahideen were not overly concerned about their wider goals. In the 1980s, Reagan stepped up the arms race, increasing military spending to unprecedented levels. The Soviets, with a much smaller economy, struggled to keep up. But they couldn't. Massive, but, but they couldn't. Massive military spending put tremendous strain on Soviet society, contributing to its collapse. The U.S. won the arms race and the Cold War. As the Cold War came to an end, some people began talking about an era of world peace and a peace dividend. But behind closed doors at the White House and the Pentagon, the talk was quite different. They were busy planning a new era of wars. Chapter 3, The New World Order In 1989, as the Eastern Bloc began to crumble, top U.S. government strategists gathered to discuss the world situation. The Soviet Union, they happily agreed, was no longer able or inclined to counter U.S. military invention abroad, intervention abroad. It was time they decided to demonstrate U.S. military power to the world. The White House wanted some decisive victories. Quote, in, case, in cases where the U.S. confronts much weaker enemies, our challenge will not be simply to defeat them, but to defeat them decisively and rapidly. End quote. From a National Security Council Policy Review document, 1989. Was there a caller who wanted us to pick up the phone? I'm sorry, I had done that earlier and nobody had answered. I will bring up the switchboard again if that person would like to join us. Just a second and I'll pull it up. Oh, that's not it. Here we go. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, bring this caller on. Hello? Caller, are you there? Oh, I hear people in the background, but I once again do not hear the caller. BMTR, are you picking up the phone? Yes, I tried to, I tried to pick up the phone, but uh, nobody's picking up, so I'm going to mute it again. Okay, according to the Panama, oh wait, I'm sorry, Panama, 1989. Panama was the first country selected to be the much weaker enemy. Ever since U.S. warships brought Panama into existence, U.S. troops have intervened in the small country whenever Washington deemed it necessary. George H.W. Bush continued his tradition in 1989, sending in 25,000 troops, supposedly to arrest a drug dealer. The drug charges were only a pretext. The real motive was assuring U.S. control over the Panama Canal and the extent of U.S. military bases in that country. A new Panamanian president was sworn in at the U.S. air base moments before the invasion. Hardly Mr. Clean, the man the U.S. State Department picked for the job, Gulamero Andara, ran a bank that is notorious for money laundering. Of course, not only Panamanian banks are involved in this business, most big U.S. banks have set up branches in Panama City. The drug trafficking and money laundering have increased sharply in Panama since Operation Just Cause. 
According to the Panamanian human rights groups, several thousand people were killed in the U.S. invasion. 26 were U.S. soldiers, 50 were Panamanian soldiers. The rest were civilians, cut down by the overwhelming U.S. firepower poured into crowding na crowded neighborhoods in poor sections of Panama City and, Col and Cologne. Many of the dead were put in garbage bags and secretly buried in mass graves. That really happened, by the way, folks. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, VMRTR, do you, are you ready to pick up the phone? I can go ahead and uh, bring you on now if you want. Well, let me go ahead and give it another try. Hello, caller, you're on the air. see if the caller's there or not. He said to wait like 20, 30 seconds because he, he has to turn off, he has to wait till he hears it on blog talk and pause that and then pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I'm waiting 20 or 30 seconds and we'll see what he has to say. It's something I'd like to add about the Panama thing. Um, if you haven't read John Perkins' confession, of an economic hitman, he covers uh, that part in detail and how Noriega uh, ends up. I mean, he's, he's still to this day in a prison in Florida. I think the only um, foreign dictator that's Hello. in that prison. Oh, okay. Hello. Hi. Are you all right. Paul? How you doing? Good. Well, we finally got you on. Yeah. <laughs> I was Where here are last week. Oh, okay. Where I are you located, caller? I was a libertarian. Oh, hi. Uh, well, good to see you again. Um, How are you doing? I took a look at the Venus Project, and I've uh, watched the documentaries with Jacques Fresco. Very interesting. I like it. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Do you think the resource-based economy is a good idea? Well, there's only one question in my mind. What's that? If, if, it's, if you're going to try to start it from scratch, there will be a great resistance. I have... But if you had, let's say, an island, and it was mm -hmm. large enough to have, let's say, 100,000 people, and you had the, um, the civilization made up the way that you would have liked it to, to be, do you think that if you took, let's say, some of the world's dictators or some of the world's most ambitious, power-hungry people, and you put them on that island, do you think that they would give up their ambitions for power? Well, um, the whole point of uh, basically inducing abundance is to essentially make it so there really isn't any point in seeking power in the first place. There's really nothing to be gained by it because everybody has everything they need anyway and most of what they want. So that's essentially the goal is just that, it, you know, people fight less when there's nothing to fight over. That's kind of what you're doing at this point. Well, I, I agree with that philosophy. They will fight less. But when there are people who fight have plenty of everything. There are people who have um, who are in that kind of category where what can you buy them for Christmas because they have everything and they still go after power. And there are people in uh, middle classes, lower middle classes who will fight just for the uh, pure sake of fighting. So that's why I asked, if you actually had that type of environment, do you think these kind of people, if they were dropped in there overnight by parachute, do you think that 
they would see by looking all around them that, you know, there wouldn't have to be any type of competition for resources or competition for a job. Do you think perhaps that their um, their power mania would go away or be ameliorated? Ameliorated. Ameliorated. <laughs> uh, eliminated, perhaps? No, um, ameliorated. <laughs> the idea is, is to create an environment where such behavior is not really conducive to any kind of benefit. Um, that's really where you're going at. It's like, if, yeah, if you get the most corrupt people in the world and gather them all together, there may be some problems initially, but the idea is is that over time, the environment will change the behavior of the people in question. This is provable if you watch closely. Um, in different places particularly, like, you know, whenever there's abundance, there is less crime, and eventually if there's a lot of abundance, the crime rate really drops down to next to nothing, depending on the culture. But it is something that would have to happen during the course of a transition. Nobody expects it to happen immediately. What we do know is that if you let a capitalist system go crazy for long periods of time, or any of these systems, the communists do it, the socialists do it, anywhere there's a power to be had, it's, gonna, it's just a matter of time before that power is consolidated. So that's why we're trying to eliminate power overall. Well, I agree. I mean, the consolidation of power does breed um, corruption. If you put three people in a room, um, three people are going to try to vie for power. So I understand how people don't need their natural resources, such as uh, you know, food and clothing and money to buy the necessities, that there would be less stress and less competition for them. But there are people who, just by human nature, will become still competitive, angry, jealous, envious, um, uh, bipolar. Well, um, let, me, let me let Emmanuel go, because I can tell he wants to talk, and then I'll, I'll comment on what you just said. Go ahead, Emmanuel. Well, it, it's, it, look, at, look at it like a, like a major game of chess. You, you cannot expect that those changes would take effect within a year. You, you cannot put a time tag on it. You can initialize it and get the information out, and then maybe two or three or four or five generations down the road, the implementation of the project would start uh, showing showing some results. But yes, I agree. Human human behavior today is not ready to embrace a, a society like this. Mm. It, we're not at that point yet because obviously uh, we've been raised uh, in a society that's eager for money, and we ourselves we we see the the uh, semi-utopic society that could that could come up on the horizon but we know that we're not we're even if we touch it okay we get all of us together in a society and we teleport ourselves from now to a thousand years from now all right well do you think we're us us all of us that listen to this show we're still gonna fight each other because that's the way we were raised eventually uh, 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 conflict would would come to the surface and uh, that's that's pretty much it you, you have to take it one step at a time and you have to initialize it because if you don't initialize it uh, this species is not going to evolve it's going to devolve mm -hmm. us as humans we're going to end up in a nuclear war or whatever whatever other uh, or uh, uh, resource war which uh, is more more likely than uh, 
than a nuclear war, but invading countries left and right for resources, that's probably going to be one of the, the major steps within the next hundred years. If we don't start implementing this and we don't start thinking in a different way. Yeah, I, I, I happen to agree that if we indoctrinate kids with the idea of, you know, you, it's not necessary to be a man or a woman by having the most materialistic things around you. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses. And I think if we take kids at a very young age and show them that, you know, you don't have to do that, then I think a society growing up with that kind of indoctrination will actually grow to evolve rather than devolve and probably evolve into something which would be on the level of a hell of a lot more peace. Um, I I don't know if you could drop people into an environment like that and they could, you know, they could just throw away their, uh, their prior mm, predilections. But suppose that kind of uh, Venus project really couldn't get off the ground, but instead, if um, and a very honest president came in and he eliminated the Federal Reserve, and he just issued money without interest. Do you think that might help? Uh, money is usually the root of all evil. Uh, you can't take that out of the equation, but at least return to a gold standard to where you have some sort of resource backing for your money. Let me, uh, let me, let me get in here real quick, uh, Emmanuel. Um, one of the problems that comes up here is that you don't really have a um, a source for any kind of you know good politician to get elected in a world where we buy our elections. Uh, I mean, like Ron Paul. I mean, you're a libertarian. You watch Ron Paul. He got a tiny percentage of the vote. He did manage to get a lot of pressure on the Federal Reserve, which is one of the benefits of like that kind of partisan politics is you can manage to get changes affected. As far as actually getting anybody elected who's going to challenge the establishment you're essentially kind of ice skating uphill at that point because the people who own the game essentially that you're playing you know, are the same people that are going to be adversely affected by the changes you would make. That's one of the reasons that we don't believe that the political system will actually be you know, able to be successful in this endeavor. Um, as long as it's legal for campaign contributions to happen, then it, it, this will always go on. I mean, in Rome, even in Rome, barbaric Rome, they figured out that bribing a senator was bad. If you bribed a senator in Rome, you were executed. It was a capital offense. And I'm not saying we should be doing that, but it's kind of a proof that you've got to understand that you know, any system that has money is never going to have good politicians because they can't afford to be. They'll be good at lying. They'll be good at pretending. But the people who you get to hear about are always the people who have managed to toe the line and have managed to convince the corporations that they're going to be, you know, that they're going to be towing the line for them and you know, doing whatever's best for them. And as far as the human nature argument, I'd want to point out that uh, the Venus Project doesn't really acknowledge the existence of human nature in the way that most people do. And we do believe that there is a nature that people will do whatever it is that they have to to survive. But we've also seen, for example, Jacques Fresco uh, traveled to the South Pacific Islands and he met with a tribe that basically had so much abundance that they never fought over anything. And that's an example of how if there is no human nature you're basically created by your environment. And if you create an environment, you know, if, for a while you may have some leftovers of the previous regime, so to speak, the previous way of thinking, the previous set of values, but eventually that will fade. It's just like when we liberated the slaves. There was still some leftover racism from the previous set of values, 
but eventually it's been overcome. I mean, there's still little bits of it, but it's it's just pockets of stupidity at this point. It's nowhere near the major movement that it used to be. And, you know, that's just, you know, and that's just a slow example because they didn't really change the environment a lot to do anything to induce these people not to be racist anymore. But that's kind of an example of what I mean. There could be some leftovers for a while. We don't expect everything to be perfect. But we do have a lot of confidence that if we are able to create a circumstance of, you know, of abundance, that people will behave much better. And then eventually, through education, in the future generations that will come out of that situation, they will just get better and better. Now, Chibi, I know you had something you wanted to say, so you're up. Um, well, on the, from the economics point of view, you know, the gold standard, um, something I would say about that is you have to realize we have this global economy now where the U.S. dollars use is used to trade oil and other things, which um, if companies or if sorry, countries stop trading in the U.S. dollar, obviously we lose a lot of value. But there's not enough money right now. There's not enough gold to back up the amount of money that's out there as far as just the U.S. dollar is concerned. Not all the goods that are created in the U.S. stay in the U.S. and vice versa. All the goods we use don't necessarily come from the U.S. So, going to a gold standard, um, if you could back up, you know, all the money that's in the economy plus the ten trillion dollar debt or, or whatever it's at at this point, there wouldn't be enough gold in the world to back that to keep its value at at the point that you want it anyway. The only thing giving it value now is the fact that people are accepting that dollar to trade it for commodities on a global market. It's become so complex at this point that uh, a gold standard can't solve that issue anymore. It, it really has no relevance anymore to what the U.S. dollar's value is. If people stop trading oil in the U.S. dollar and other commodities across the world, it wouldn't matter how much gold you have, your dollar would still just, your market would be flooded with it and it would lose all its value. As far as the, you know, the three people in, in one room uh, I understand what you're getting at, but if, if that room were conducive to an environment of cooperation, you would get cooperation. If it was conducive to where there would be a benefit for one person to be the top dog, then there would be a top dog. But if for some reason, I mean, it's just like hunter-gatherer tribes. You know, if you only had three gatherers and three hunters, killing one of the other hunters over some sort of, you know, vibe for power would, there would be nothing to gain from that. In fact, it would hurt the entire tribe because, you know, you wouldn't have enough hunters to gain the resources you needed for the entire tribe to survive. So it really depends on the environment, not just the people and the nature of the people. So, you know, dropping them in a certain environment, uh, you know, it sounds like a logical thing, but you have to really examine every aspect of the environment you're dropping them into before you can make a, you know, reach a conclusion. Now, uh, caller, uh, what did you want us to call you so that I could refer to you Joe. directly? Is it? Joe. Joe? Yeah. Okay, Joe. Um, did that answer your question? Well, yeah, it answers it. Uh, it doesn't okay. satisfy me, but it answers it. <laughs> well, I understand. Um, it is a very complex issue, and it takes a while to really grasp it. I mean, as we, we talked about this earlier, I used to be a free market capitalist libertarian myself, and now... Actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the Boston Tea Party, but I'm actually on the National Committee of the Boston Tea Party, and I just formed a caucus uh, within that to try to form essentially a form of libertarianism that embraces these ideals to achieve freedom. Mm -hmm. So, um, Yeah, you talked about that last week. Yeah, um, well, yeah, but you can go to bostontea.us and check out the thing that I basically wrote, you know, wrote about it. But um, in any case... Um, 
if you, did you have any further questions? I mean, you're free to stay on the line, of course. Um, it just we, we are also reading a book here. Um, yeah, I'm reading you, a, along with you. I have I've downloaded the book some time ago. But uh, yeah, it's oh, very excellent, book. excellent. I also read the um, the other book, uh, which was also recommended by um, by the. Oh, I just downloaded it now. Um, hmm. What's the name of it? Oh yeah, about the Rockefellers, mm-hmm. the incredible hmm. Rocky. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, those guys are all evil. Um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway, mm-hmm. now um, I'll I'll get off the line now. So I'll let you guys get back to what you're doing. Okay, excellent. Well, you know, once again, you're encouraged to call in anytime you want. And if you ever like, you know, want to get in contact with me or whatever, so that we can have like further debates on this subject, I have no problem bringing it up so that I can help answer your questions. I know where you are in your mind right now. It took me a while to come to, come to where I am as well. So, um, Yeah, I, I, I listened a little bit to Peter Joseph today. I thought he was you, but he's not. No, he's not. Um, I do speak you know, as a spokesman for the Venus Project, um, but I'm not Peter Joseph. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'll let you guys get back to what you're doing. So take care now. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that was a good caller named Joe. He called into one of our previous shows. Um, And uh, I wanted to actually comment on something that somebody is bringing up in the chat room that's only somewhat related, but it has to do with the National Initiative for Democracy. Uh, the National Institute for Democracy, uh, the NI4D, has strict rules about how money can be spent um, during campaigns for these national ballot initiatives. Um, national ballot initiatives essentially are direct democracy that allow you to make federal um, uh, donations, or not federal donations, federal ballot initiatives to make federal laws from the people. But um, yeah, it's not only can corporations not donate money to the National Initiative, but in addition to that, um, there's a limit to how much you can donate as well. So um, there's there's a way around that, though. Uh, I mean, you you can't really regulate. Uh, what well, usually corporations do? They donate to a ONG or a non-governmental agency, and that non-governmental agency donates them to another non-governmental agency, and then you lose track of the money, and then the politicians still get the pot. Well, I've they, seen that, too. I mean, like, uh, my own opponent in uh, running for Congress, there was, like, all these people donating from Halliburton $500,000 at a time to her campaign. I've never seen anybody donate that much money to a congressional campaign individually, but in any case, I don't want to get too far off topic. Now, I believe we were talking about Panama and how many of the dead were put in garbage bags and secretly buried in mass graves. Um, we're moving on to Iraq, 1991. Only 13 months after the invasion of Panama, the U.S. went to war again, this time on a much larger scale. The 1991 U.S.-Iraq war continued an epic battle for control over the immensely rich oil fields of the Persian Gulf that began over 75 years earlier. During World War I, the British conquered the region that is now Iraq and Kuwait, seizing it from declining, the declining Ottoman Empire. We didn't conquer the Arabs, we liberated them. In 1920, hundreds of British soldiers and many more Iraqis died when the British army suppressed a revolt against British rule. Britain ended up installing a hand-picked king of Iraq. The new monarch promptly signed a deal with with the British and American oil companies, giving them the right to exploit all of Iraq's oil for 75 years in exchange for a pittance in royalties. 
As the British Empire declined, the U.S. became the senior partner in an enduring Anglo-American alliance. The Middle East became a key part of their global sphere of influence. The Middle East possesses almost two-thirds of the world's known oil reserves. Control over the flow of oil by U.S. and British companies gave Washington strategic power over Europe, Japan, and the developing world. The U.S. State Department declared that Middle Eastern oil was, quote, a stupendous source of strategic power, one, that the greatest pri- one of the greatest prizes in history, end quote. Washington came to think of the oil fields in the Middle East as its own private reserves. <laughs> Showing a little cart- cartoon here of a little Arab guy talking to a, a, a guy from Mobile, uh, the gas company. He's like, it says, exploring to see, he's like, well, the Arab says, what are you up to? He's like, exploring to see if there are any vital American interests under your soil. <laughs> it reminds me of the story of stuff. I don't know if you guys have watched it. It's a really, really cute 20-minute documentary um, with this lady explaining that. And uh, one of the things she says, here we have the third world, which is another way of saying all of our stuff that for some reason ended up on somebody else's land. Anyway, back to the book. In 1958, U.S. and British oil companies were startled when the king of Iraq was overthrown. The new leader, a nationalist military officer named Abdel Karim Kwazim, demanded changes in the sweetheart deals the monarchy had made with the oil companies. He also helped form OPEC, the cartel of oil-producing countries. In 1963, the CIA collaborated with the, collaborated with the Ba'ath Party to murder Kwazim and overthrow his government. The Ba'ath Party was also nationalist, but at least it was anti-communist. It systematically killed its leftist opponents, and the CIA was happy to help. Among the CIA's collaborators in the 1963 coup was a young military officer named Saddam Hussein, who later emerged as the top leader in Iraq. But Hussein soon disappointed his accomplices in the U.S. by nationalizing the Iraqi oil industry. Other Arab leaders followed suit, greatly alarming U.S. officials. Quote from Henry Kissinger, Oil is much too important a commodity to be left in the hands of the Arabs, end quote. U.S. officials were delighted. After the 1979 Iranian Revolution, American strategists considered Iran the main threat to U.S. interests in the Middle East. The U.S. and its allies, therefore, were happy to provide Hussein with advanced weaponry. U.S. companies even sold Iraq materials to make chemical and biological weapons, including highly lethal strains of anthrax. Iraq used chemical weapons against both Iranian troops and insurgent Kurdish villagers inside Iraq. The Reagan administration knew this, but the U.S. continued to supply Hussein not only with the necessary chemicals, but also with satellite photos of the positions of Iranian troops. Over 100,000 Iranian soldiers were killed or injured by poison gas. This is one of the reasons why Ron Paul pointed out that it was kind of BS that all of a sudden we need to invade Iraq because of the things they did with the chemical weapons that we gave them. Um, anyway, fear of the reading. In 1987, the Reagan administration intervened directly in the Iran-Iraq war on Iraq's side, sending a naval armada to the Persian Gulf to protect the oil tankers of a country that was what was then Iraq's ally, Kuwait. Using state-of-the-art weaponry, the U.S. Navy blew up an Iranian oil platform, destroyed several small speedboats, and recklessly shot down an Iranian passenger airline, killing all 290 passengers. Despite U.S. support, Saddam Hussein failed to seize any any of Iran's oil fields, so he then turned his attention to the oil fields of his southern neighbor. He invaded Kuwait. 
Hussein apparently expected that the U.S. would also tactfully go along with his invasion of Kuwait. For the U.S., however, Kuwait was very different from Iran. The Kuwaiti emir was a loyal friend of the U.S. and British oil companies and a close political ally of the United States. George H.W. Bush worried that the huge Iraqi army had become a threat to the U.S. domination of the Middle East. Quote from George H.W. Bush, August of 1990, Our jobs, our way of life, our own freedom and the freedom of friendly countries and the world would all suffer if control of the world's greatest oil reserves fell into the hands of Saddam Hussein. Bush decided Hussein had to be punished for trespassing on an oil-rich U.S. protectorate. <laughs> Quote, he's going to get his ass kicked. The Honorable George H.W. Bush, December in 1990. The Pentagon launched the most intensive bombing campaign in history using conventional bombs, cluster bombs, designed to rip bodies apart, napalm and phosphorus, which cling to and burn the skin, and fuel-air explosives, which have the impact of small nuclear bombs, Later, the U.S. used munitions tipped with depleted uranium, which is now suspected as a cause of cancer among both Iraqis and U.S. soldiers and their children. Iraq was bombed back to pre-industrial age, and tens of thousands were killed. The message that the war had a message for the world: "What we say goes." George H. W. Bush, February 1991. Baghdad and Basra were bombed relentlessly, killing thousands of civilians. Iraq had already begun to withdraw from Kuwait when Bush launched the ground war. The main aim of the ground offensive was, in fact, not to drive the Iraqi troops out of Kuwait, but to keep them from leaving. The gate was closed, and tens of thousands of soldiers who were trying to go home were systematically slaughtered. Elsewhere, U.S. tanks and bulldozers intentionally buried thousands of soldiers alive in their trenches in a tactic designed mainly to destroy Iraqi defenders. Quote, in the light of a, quote by George H. Bush, January 1991, quote, in the life of a nation where comes a moment when, there comes a moment when we are called upon to define what we are and what we believe, end quote. Tens of thousands of Iraqis died during the war, and the tragedy continued after the war ended. Even more people died from waterborne diseases that spread because the U.S. systematically destroyed U, um, Iraq's electrical sewage treatment and water treatment systems. For over a decade, the U.S. insisted on maintaining the most severe economic sanctions regime in history, continuing to strangle the devastated Iraqi economy with dire consequences for the Iraqi people. In 1999, UNICEF established that infant and child mortality had more than doubled since the war. It attributed this sharp increase in mortality mainly to malnutrition and deteriorating health conditions caused by the war and ongoing sanctions. It estimated that half a million more children died as a result. That's 5,200 children a month. Bush's successor, Bill Clinton, not only kept up the sanctions, but also continued to bomb Iraq regularly for eight years. And the U.S. war on Iraq was far from over. Kosovo, 1999. In the late 1990s, after enduring years of abuse at the hands of a Serbian-dominated Yugoslav government, Albanian rebels in Kosovo started a war for secession. The U.S. usually does not support minority groups demanding separation, but it all depends on whether the U.S. supports the government of the country facing dismemberment. For instance, the U.S. supports Kurdish separatists in Iraq and Iran, but across the border in Turkey, a close ally, Washington has provided tons of arms to crush the Kurds. With the U.S. help, tens of thousands have been killed. Our policy is clear. We support people fighting for their freedoms and oppose terrorist separatists. <laughs> 
Because the uh, Yugoslav strongman Slobodan Milosevic was being less than cooperative with U.S. efforts to extend its influence in Eastern Europe, breaking up Yugoslavia was a cause the U.S. could warm up to. The Clinton administration embraced the Kosovo Liberation Army, despite their drug dealing, ethnic extremism, and brutality. Following established practice, the administration issued an ultimatum the Yugoslavs could not possibly accept. Here's the deal. First, NATO takes over Kosovo. Second, NATO has free access to all of Yugoslavia. Third, you help pay for the NATO-run government. Sign here or we bomb you. The NATO bombing turned an ugly but small-scale Yugoslav counterinsurgency operation into a massive ethnic cleansing drive. After the bombing began, Serbian soldiers and militia members began driving hundreds of thousands of Albanians out of the country and killed thousands of others. When the Albanians returned under NATO protection, Serbian and Gypsy residents were driven out and killed. Ultimately, the war served U.S. political objectives while causing tremendous death and suffering on all sides and greatly aggravating ethnic antagonisms. All right, I'm going to pause here and I'm going to bring on the panelists and we can comment on this particular chapter. All right. Chibi, are you there? Yep. All right. What comments did you have on this chapter? I don't have a whole lot of comments about this. I mean, it. I. I mean, this is a lot of this has been covered within my lifetime, and, or within you know, our lifetime, and so it's. Um, uh, yeah, it sucks. I don't know what else to say about it. Basically. Emmanuel, did you have anything to say on this chapter? Well, it's control and costs. Like in Zeitgeist, it's, it's pretty much drawn down to you try to spend, well, U.S. tries to spend as much, as little as, uh, as possible when it comes to money uh, to, to get, um, get its way around the world and push, push for whatever its interests. And it starts with the, like in Zeitgeist, it starts with uh, the, the political diplomats and then it goes to the CIA which is a little bit more expensive and then the jackals which are a little bit more expensive and then if it doesn't work that way you go to war and you try to uh, implement that 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 way of thinking that's actually taken from Zanzu now on the other side if you're trying to make money as a business from a war which we saw in the previous chapters and in in recent history then you try to extend that war as much as possible you don't try and win it because if you win it straight on which US could have won the war in Vietnam the US could have won the war in Korea um, then you lose money so the more you keep a war on the roll the more money you make as a company that supplies the government as an arms dealer as in whatever. As far as Kosovo and Slobodan Milosevic, um, I can attach a small a funny uh, part to it. There was a U.S. embargo on uh, Serbia when it, come, when it came to gas, and I know I actually know a, per, a person here in, in Michigan, one of my friends, that used to run gas and break the embargo, run gas from Romania. They would adapt their cars and ex expand their tanks and whatnot and fill them up with gas and just cross the border because you are still allowed to cross the border and the, the, the customs would not check if your car was up to code or not. 
So you would cross the border like two or three or four, <laughs> four times a week, and uh, you would they would sell the gas at almost four times the, the price because it was so sought after by Milosevic's army and by private people with different interests in in Serbia. So that was a little footnote that um, I, it's, since I lived through that history. Obviously, the big money were made by the big uh, government guys at that time who were able to sneak trains after sunset on uh, after the satellites from the US could not pick them up anymore they were able to sneak entire trains full of fuel into Serbia totally breaking the embargo and making money so that's a that's a footnote to to the Serbian conflict you know um, I'm glad that you brought that up and it's funny is like you're saying running gas it almost sounds like the uh the old moonshine drivers that we had here in the United States back during alcohol prohibition. Um, but, you know, like you said, it's, it's all about money and how we move it around. And I don't think that people really realize it's not just that money makes the world go round and the money is bad. It's not just the simple stuff that we're talking about. It's not even just poverty. We're basically talking about what amounts to uh, paid genocide if it makes somebody a dollar. And now you've got to imagine... What kind of personality, what kind of human being, you know, would be willing to do these sorts of things in the name of being, you know, getting a new yacht? I mean, it's bad enough when companies do things like, you know, put, lay off hundreds of thousands of workers with no, you know, care as to what happens to them, you know, or any of the other things that we don't like corporations to do, pollution. This stuff is all bad stuff. But we're talking about just mass slaughter, um, of anybody who is not, who gets in the way of our of our corporations, and that's one of the major reasons why money has to be removed from the equation if we're ever going to have real freedom and real peace. Yeah, and that's uh, basically where that comes from. Did you have something you wanted to say, Chibi? I was just going to add. I don't. Uh, it is money, but at that level of wealth, it's no longer about money as much as power and power consolidation, in my opinion. That once you have a certain amount of money and, a, you know, you're trying to build on your monopoly and take over resources, it's, it's not just about the, the dollar anymore per se, but it's the same tool that's used to get to gain, you know, that resource um, control. It's, okay, there's, there's an old saying, um, the emperors of Rome had this. It, it gives the... Uh, plebeis or the the the, the lowest uh, citizens of Rome give them pane a circus pretty much bread and circus that's what boils down to if you want to consolidate your power once you have enough wealth what you do is you keep your peers and 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 the people your connationals and the people throughout the world you keep them indoctrinated you keep them not not necessarily stupid, but ignorant, and that's how you you keep control over population. Yeah, I agree. Did you have something further, Chibi? No, I was just going to agree as well. That, that's pretty much what I was saying. It's not necessarily about the yacht for somebody who can afford ten yachts and ten planes and everything. At that point, it becomes about the power and the power consolidation, which comes about through resource control, which the money is a tool for that. But it, it it's so much larger than that at that scale. It doesn't necessarily come down to the yacht anymore. That's all. 
Well, I understand definitely. I and mean, when you're talking about control of resources, it's also like one of the things that the aspects of this that I don't think people really realize, it's it, not very often do they actually break down the chronology of how these things take place. Because people always say things like, uh, free market capitalists especially always say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with these companies, you know, employing people in slave labor conditions because those people, of course, have the option of not working for them. Um, that's something that, you know, story of stuff kind of exposes and debunks. But largely what it amounts to is this. Let's take, for example, the agricultural industry, Monsanto, probably the most evil company on the earth. Um, and what they would do is basically they'll go into a smaller country they will sell their fruit and, and food at a price that is less than the cost of production. This essentially, in turn, puts out all the local farmers and puts them out of work. After they're out of work because they can't possibly compete, Monsanto will then, in turn, buy all of that land. And this, of course, puts these farmers in a position where they have no other way to fend for themselves other than to work in factories that aren't necessarily owned by Monsanto, but they could be, working for a tiny fraction of what their money is really worth. And that's how they do, they do this. They basically destroy the economy, and, that's, and that is how they control the resources. And in this case, they control the resources, you know, of, of, like the, of arable land that is good for making fruit. Um, United Fruit is mentioned frequently throughout the book Addicted to War as being one of the companies that pushes, you know, for this. It, you know, we don't get all this, you know, we think about, like, our supermarkets, you don't get all the citrus fruit for nothing, and you can't, you can't plant it all in the United States, especially not at the vast quantities that we consume it. Um, it's basically dripped its way into everything, and it's one of the major reasons why we feel that you know, no true freedom is ever going to come out of any capitalist system, any communist system, or any socialist system. We need to get, we need to get beyond this concept that we you know, should be exchanging you know, money for these things because inevitably it makes it too easy for somebody to corner it even if we switch to a sound money system, it wouldn't help because, in fact, if you think about it, even when money was made out of you know, precious metals, um, like this is you know, in the days before, you know, when, when all we had was gold coins, silver coins, and copper coins, was how we made all of our exchanges, there were still rich people, there were still poor people, they were still manipulating the market to make sure that they had the majority of the money, and there was nothing you could do about it. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm kind of worried about any future that's going to involve capitalism as supposedly being the source, you know, being any form of solution. And obviously, we've already been over why socialism and communism fail. We can see it. So anyway, bearing that in mind, I'm going to move on to further into the book. We're going to talk now about Chapter 4, The War on Terrorism. Once again, thank you for tuning in to V Radio. Um, and uh, do me a favor, obviously I archive these shows on uh, the Zeitgeist forums and the Venus Project section in the, in the thread that is sticky near the top that says um, V-Radio Archive Shows. Oh, and another thing, I don't know if I announced this earlier, but the Venus Project now has its own forums. Uh, you can go there to discuss matters pertinent to the Venus Project. I am the moderator of these forums. You, if you log into the Venus Project, you can uh, scroll down on the Get Involved area, and in green, highlighted in green, you will see the, the member forum. If you go there, um, I can obviously answer your questions about the Venus Project anytime. So with any luck, Joe is still listening. I should have brought that to his attention. Uh, the people have asked why there's a Venus Project forum and why there's, you know, when we have a Zeitgeist forum, and it's because of the fact that a lot of things that are brought up on the Zeitgeist forum uh, are not really relevant to the Venus Project. So 
anyway, bringing all that up now, we're moving on to Chapter 4, The War on Terrorism. After the horrific September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, one question was so, seriously, was so sensitive it was seldom seriously addressed by the U.S. news media. Why did they do it? To find out, it makes sense to ask the prime suspect himself. As U.S. warplanes began bombing Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden released a videotaped message. He praised the September 11th attacks and called for more attacks in the United States. Then he spelled out his motivations quite clearly. Quote, what America is tasting now is something insignificant compared to what we have tasted for scores of years. Our nation, the Islamic world, has been tasting this humiliation and degradation for more than 80 years. Its sons are killed. Its blood is shed. Its sanctuaries are attacked, and no one hears and no one heeds. Millions of innocent children are being killed as I speak. They are being killed in Iraq without committing any sins to America. I say only a few words to it and its people. I swear to God, who has elevated the skies without pillars, neither America nor the people who live in it will dream of security before we live it here in Palestine, and not before all of the infidel armies leave the land of Muhammad. Peace be upon him. Osama bin Laden, October 7, 2001. Few people anywhere in the world, including the Middle East, support bin Laden's terrorist methods, but most people in the Middle East share his anger at the United States. They are angry at the U.S. for supporting corrupt and dictatorial regimes in the region for supporting Israel at the expense of the Palestinians and for imposing U.S. dictates in the Middle East through military might and brutal economic sanctions. The Bush administration immediately instructed U.S. television networks to exercise caution in airing bin Laden's taped messages. The official reason? The tapes may contain secret coded messages for terrorist operatives. But were, covert mes but what, were the covert messages the administration's main concern? Perhaps it was more worried about the impact of bin Laden's overt message that the September 11th attacks were carried out in retaliation for U.S. foreign policy and particularly U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. If Americans realized that U.S. military intervention abroad brought retaliation, causing death and destruction at home, we might think twice about whether the U.S. should be so eager to go to war overseas. The Pentagon has demonstrated time and again that its advanced weaponry can devastate countries targeted for attack leveling basic infrastructure and killing thousands, even hundreds of thousands of people. It would be, be naive to think there would be no retaliation. Over the last several decades, the true cost of the wars the U.S. has waged overseas has largely been hidden. We have had to pay the military bills, but few Americans have died. The death and destruction were all overseas that changed, uh, were all overseas. That changed on September 11th. The violence reached the United States. The September 11th attacks, however, were not simply acts of retribution, they were also provocation. Bill Laden expected the U.S. to respond with massive violence. Knowing this would bring him new recruits, ultimately he hoped to win the majority of the Muslim world to support his holy war on the U.S. The Bush administration responded according to bin Laden's script. George H.W. Bush declared a war on terrorism using good versus evil rhetoric that mirrored bin Laden's. Bush and his advisors were ready even eager for the war bin Laden wanted. They saw the September 11th attacks as a grand opportunity to boost military spending and demonstrate U.S. military power to the world. Quote, this will be a monumental struggle of good versus evil. This crusade, this war on terrorism is going to take a while. George, H. George W. Bush, September 12th and 16th, 2001. 
The self-righteous good versus evil rhetoric of the war on terrorism sharpens ironies that have long shadowed U.S. pronouncements against state-sponsored terrorism. President Bush, for instance, promised to scour the globe in search of states that harbor terrorists. He could have started in the state of Florida. For over 40 years, Miami has served as the base of operations for a well-financed group of Cuban exiles that have carried out violent terrorist attacks on Cuba. Most recently, they bombed a number of Havana tourist spots in 1997, killing an Italian tourist, and they tried to assassinate Fidel Castro in Panama in 2000. It would not be difficult for the U.S. government to find evidence involving these terrorist organizations because the CIA and the Pentagon train many of their members. Take, for instance, Luis Posada Carriles and Orlando Bosch, suspected masterminds of the bombing of a Cuban passenger airliner that claimed the lives of 73 people. Quote, all of Castro's planes are warplanes. Orlando Bosch, 1987, defending the bombing of the civilian Cuban plane. Before Posada Carriles could be tried for the airline bombing, he escaped from a prison in Venezuela and found a job supplying arms to the CIA-backed Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan Contras. My experience in the CIA gave me the right credentials for the job. Posada's accomplice, Orlando Bosch, has long been protected from extradition by the U.S. government. Although Bosch was convicted of carrying out a bazooka attack on a ship in Miami Harbor, President George H.W. Bush, at the urging of his son Jeb, prevented his expulsion from the country. Bush signed an executive pardon providing Bosch with safe haven in Florida. Bosch promised to rejoin the struggle. <laughs> hold on, there's a picture of Bush saying, hold on, let me set the record straight. I pardon only freedom fighters, not terrorists. <laughs> If George W. Bush had been serious about going after all states that harbor terrorists, he would have issued an ultimatum to his brother, the governor of Florida. Listen, Jeb, you're going to have to cough up the terrorists or we start bombing Miami tomorrow. <laughs> Posada, Bosch, and their friends are only a few of the violent characters whose activities have been sponsored by the CIA. Many of the CIA's covert operations, bombings, assassinations, sabotage, and paramilitary massacres are terrorism by any definition. Many of the shadowy figures involved in these activities are still working with the CIA around the world, but others, including Osama bin Laden, have turned on their former American partners. It's too bad. They made such a good team. Afghanistan, 2001 to present. Bush's war on terrorism began with U.S. warplanes bombing Afghanistan, the unfortunate country where bin Laden chose to locate his headquarters. At that time, Afghanistan was ruled by fundamentalist Muslim clerics of the Taliban movement, whom both bin Laden and the CIA had supported during the anti-Soviet war. Now Washington decided to destroy its former allies. The people of Afghanistan suffered the consequences. U.S. bomb killed hundreds and perhaps thousands of civilians, and the war cut off relief supplies to millions already facing starvation. The total number of deaths will never be known, but it's certain that many more civilians died in the U.S. assault on Afghanistan than in the attack on the World Trade Center. There's a really sad picture here of relatives preparing four children for burial after a U.S. strike in Kabul, October 2001. The kids look like they're my age. If somebody did that to my kids, I think I'd probably be in the field with a gun, too. The U.S. made common cause with a new set of Afghan allies, brutal regional warlords. Under U.S. auspices, Islamic fundamentalism has been replaced by brazen corruption as warlords fight for power and prey on the people under their jurisdiction. The opium trade, which the zealous Taliban clerics had briefly suppressed, 
once again flourishes under the warlords, and Afghanistan regained its place as the world's top opium producer, Iraq in 2003 to the present. From the day they took office, Bush and his key, key lieutenants set their sights on Iraq. After 9-11, they packaged an invasion as part of the war on terrorism. To win UN backing, they claimed Saddam Hussein was developing nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. The threat was so imminent, they said, that an immediate invasion was imperative, quoting George W. Bush in October 2002. We can't wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. We now know that Iraq had, quote, no weapons of mass destruction, and that Bush had, the Bush administration manipulated evidence to justify its war plans. Even then, it was clear that the specter of, of such weapons was a just pretext. The U.S. made no secret of its underlying war aims, to assault, install a pro-U.S. regime in Iraq and increase, increase U.S. military and political power in the Middle East. Bush, therefore, had little use for U.N. weapons inspectors in Iraq. The U.N. refused to endorse the invasion, but the U.S. and Britain went ahead anyway. The Iraqi army was decimated, and thousands of civilians who were unlucky enough to get in the way were also killed. As soon as U.S. troops captured Baghdad, elated American officials began issuing threats to Iraq's neighbors, Syria and Iran. The message was, go along with the American program or else. A quote from senior, uh, a senior U.S. official in April 2003 stated, this doesn't mean necessarily that other governments have to fall. They can moderate their behavior. The Bush administration had big plans. Based on Iraq's tremendous oil wealth and U.S. military might, American officials hoped to create a client regime in Iraq and use it as a base of U.S. power in the heart of the Arab Middle East. They brought in a group of emigre politicians intending to install them as leaders of a new government. Their favorite was Ahmed Chalabi a wealthy businessman who was convicted of bank fraud in Jordan. Chalabi won the hearts of White House officials in part by declaring that he favored pulling Iraq out of OPEC and then privatizing Iraqi oil and selling it off to foreign companies. American companies have a big shot at Iraqi oil. Ahmed Chalabi, Chalabi, September 2002. But Bush and his friends overlooked one detail, that the people of Iraq might not go along with their plans. Bush declared that he had liberated the people of Iraq and that he would bring them democracy. The Iraqis, quite naturally, were suspicious. We know what happened after the British liberated our grandparents, and we know what happened the last time the U.S. brought us regime change. We ended up with Saddam Hussein. <laughs> That's a quote there. If the post is any indication, if the past is any indication, the prosperity for democracy in Iraq under U.S. tutelages are not good. The U.S. was overthrown, many governments has, or has overthrown many governments around the world, but the result was rarely, has rarely been any kind of democracy. Instead, the result was always a brutal, has always been a brutal dictatorship. It soon became clear that American liberation of Iraq came with strings attached. From U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, April 2003, we didn't take on this huge burden not to have significant dominating control. Bush appointed Paul Bremer III, a counterterrorism expert trained by Henry Kissinger, to head up the U.S. occupation of Iraq. U.S. oil company executives and bankers were assigned to look after the Iraqi oil industry and central bank. U.S. military officers were placed in charge of Iraqi cities. We called it the corporate military model of government. 
You can learn about Bremer and uh, this whole issue that he's talking about in a very good documentary about Iraq called No End in Sight. Uh, it is by far the best documentary about Iraq I have ever seen, and it will make you really angry, I assure you. Now, Bush promised to give sovereignty back to Iraqis, but he also made it clear that only a pro-American government would be acceptable. Because, of course, if you're not with us, you're with the terrorists. Because the U.S. is extremely unpopular among Arabs throughout the Middle East, if Iraqis actually were allowed to vote freely, they could hardly be expected to elect pro-U.S. candidates. That's why the U.S. admittedly resisted holding popular elections in occupied Iraq, instead proposing that members of a new governing assembly be selected by hand-picked caucuses. A quote from Paul Bremer, head of the Coalition Provisional Authority in June 2003, in a post-war situation like this, if you start holding elections, the people who are rejectionists tend to win. By rejectionists, Bremer meant those who oppose U.S. occupation. There's a picture here of 100,000 Iraqis marching to demand popular elections in Baghdad, January 19, 2004. The U.S. occupation authority in Iraq was hardly a model of democratic government. Newspapers and radio and television stations that criticized the authority were shut down. They displayed a blatant lack of appreciation for their liberators. Tens of thousands of Iraqis disappeared into prisons run by the U.S. military. Prisoners were held without charge and were subject to humiliation, sexual abuse, and torture. Now here's another quote, this one from U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft after he sent the team to rebuild Iraq's system of courts and prisons in 2003, quote, now all Iraqis can taste liberty in their native land. Facing a hostile population, the U.S. military policed Iraqi cities and villages with a heavy hand. Scores of Iraqis were killed as they protested against the occupation. Journalists were gunned down as they covered U.S. military operations. Others, who were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, were shot at military checkpoints or when soldiers raided their neighborhoods. The U.S. US occupation of Iraq followed the familiar path of previous colonial adventures. Iraqis organized armed resistance and the U.S. military took increasingly harsh punitive measures against the population, inspiring fear and indignation. As U.S. soldiers and Iraqis died in daily battles, Bush's response was swaggering cowboy rhetoric. George Walker Bush, Washington, D.C., July 2003, quote, There are some who feel like they can attack us. They attack us there. My answer is, bring them on. <laughs> There's a picture of a soldier here saying, I wonder if he'd like to do guard duty here in Baghdad. By spring 2004, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to go to the top here. As resistance grew... Uh, um, American commanders became increasingly frustrated and aggressive. After four U.S. military contractors were brutally killed in Fallujah, the U.S. took revenge. Hundreds of residents were killed as densely packed neighborhoods were shelled by tanks and bombed and strafed by warplanes and helicopters. The siege of Fallujah only incited wider opposition throughout Iraq to U.S. occupation. It's at this time that I would like to point out a little bit something of extra here. The the military contractors that he's talking about were members of Blackwater. Blackwater is essentially like uh, the equivalent of Bush's stormtroopers. They um, do an awful lot of cruel things to the Iraqi people. They even put videos of themselves up on YouTube of them randomly driving down the street and shooting at people. Um, not exactly savory people. And they knew what they were doing. It's not in any way an accident. And honestly, if if you think about this in your own terms, really kind of make yourself think about these people as people, because that's what they are. 
okay? If you had some idiot driving down your street, randomly shooting at people and killing people that you knew, how would you react? Well, I think it's stringing people up in the, you know, on a bridge for that is it's probably an appropriate reaction by some people. I would point out, though, that it's, it's very possible that the four soldiers in question were not involved in any of that. But overall, this is the reason why th that happened to those uh, military contractors. They weren't construction workers or something. They were mercenaries. By spring 2004, it was clear that Bush's grandiose plans had collapsed. The vast majority of Iraqis wanted the U.S. out, and they wanted nothing to do with poli any politicians associated with Washington. A quote from an unidentified American soldier in Baghdad, they don't want us here, and we don't want to be here. Resistance drove up the cost of occupation, keeping over 135,000 troops in Iraq cost over $1 billion a week. Every day, U.S. soldiers returned home in coffins or disabled for life, while politicians and generals in Washington continued to insist that they would never back down no matter what the cost, because their credibility as a military superpower was on the line. The U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq, together with continued U.S. support for the Israeli occupation of Palestine, have added fuel to the simmering anti-American sentiments across the Middle East. By invading and occupying Muslim countries, the U.S. is only inviting more attacks on U.S. soldiers and other American targets. The Pentagon was promised to respond with more violence. U.S. Special Forces officer in Afghanistan, February 2002, quotes, We will export death and violence to the four corners of the earth in our defense of our great nation. The spiral of bloodshed is escalating dangerously. America's longtime addiction to war has reached a new level, creating greater dangers for people in this country and around the world. Unfortunately, there are some people who profit handsomely from this addiction. Chapter 5, The War Profiteers In, front of, in the front lines of the pro-war crowd, you'll find an assortment of politicians, generals, and corporate executives. If you ask them why they are so eager to go to war, they will give you all noble, selfless reasons. Democracy, freedom, justice, peace. What really motivates them is to go to war are somewhat less lofty aims. Contracts, markets, natural resources, power. For most people, the huge Pentagon budget means less money in their pockets. But for some people, just the opposite is true. Over 100,000 companies feed at the Pentagon trough, but the big money goes to a handful of huge corporations. 1999 Pentagon contracts to United Technology, $2.4 billion, Texatron, $1.4 billion, Northrop Gunroom, $3.2 billion, Boeing, $11.6 billion, Raytheon, $6.4 billion, General Electric, $1.7 billion, General Dynamics, $4.6 billion, Lockheed Martin, $12.7 billion, and TRW, $1.4 billion. As they watch the missiles flying and the bombs dropping in the Middle East, top executives of the big weapons manufacturers are adding up their profits, their brains working like cash registers gone haywire. For weapons, market, for weapons makers, wars mean more orders, not only from the Pentagon, but also from overseas. After the first Gulf War demonstrated that their weapons can truly kill on a massive scale, Foreign sales by U.S. weapons manufacturers skyrocketed. 
Who are the war profiteers? Let's take a look at some of the men who in Washington are the most gung-ho about war. Dick Cheney. Few Taliban politicians can match Dick Cheney's enthusiasm for war or his record of wanton destruction. As George H.W. Bush's Secretary of Defense, he presided over wars against Panama and Iraq. And then as Vice President under George W. Bush, he led the war drives against Afghanistan and Iraq. Between wars, Dick has turned his attention from destruction to construction, that is post-war reconstruction. In 1995, he was named CEO of Halliburton and world's largest oil services company and a major military contractor. After the first Gulf War, Halliburton was hired to help rebuild the Kuwaiti oil industry. Then after the second Gulf War, the company was back to clean up the mess again for a healthy fee. You gotta hand it to Dick. He's got an innovative business strategy. First bomb it, then clean it up, and then bomb it again, and then clean it up again, getting paid for it all the way. Halliburton is raking in hundreds of millions of dollars for feeding and housing U.S. troops in Iraq, and it got the biggest post-war reconstruction prize, a secret no-bid contract, meaning with no competition, to rebuild Iraqi oil facilities that will likely be worth billions. It's nice to have friends in Washington. As Halliburton CEO, Cheney was rewarded handsomely, pocketing millions in salary and stock options every year. He ended up as Halliburton's largest individual stockholder with a $45 million stake. Cheney got draft deferments five times to avoid fighting in Vietnam, but he's eager to send others to fight to die and then reap the benefits. He's served on the boards of several huge contractors, and his wife, Lynn, joined the board of Lockheed Martin. After Cheney returned to the White House in 2001, Lockheed got the biggest plum in Pentagon history, a contract worth hundreds of billions to make the next generation of fighter jets. I suppose that's supposed to be some kind of coincidence. Richard Pearl. As the head of, Pentagon, of the Pentagon's Defense Policy Board, Richard Pearl was a chief architect of both the uh, war on Iraq and Donald Rumsfeld's efforts to revolutionize military technology in 2001. Pearl joined Henry Kissinger and other Washington insiders to form a company called Shereem Partners. Shereem raises venture capital from wealthy individuals and invested in weapons companies, betting on those it expects will get the most lucrative government contracts. Pearl has also served as an advisor to the Israeli government. Whether in Washington or Jerusalem, his advice is always the same. War is the answer. Pearl has particularly pushed for a war against three countries he considers Israel's main enemies, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. Cheney, Pearl, and their friends go back and forth through a revolving door that connects jobs at the Pentagon, the White House, Congress, and corporate military contractors. Lots of money changes hands in Washington as weapons manufacturers make generous contributions to politicians and politicians hand out fat Pentagon contracts to weapons manufacturers. This leads to all kinds of shady agreements and overpriced goods. <laughs> Here's to the Pentagon, the only place you can sell a 13-cent bolt for $2,000.43. The war on terrorism has led to a tremendous windfall for the military contractors. The Army, Navy, and Air Force, and the contractors they represent, are lining up to get money for expensive new weapon systems, now packaged as indispensable for fighting terrorism. In fact, under the banner of funding the war on terrorism, Congress has abandoned efforts to avoid budget deficits. Instead, every year it gives the Pentagon what amounts, what amounts to a blank check, whatever it takes. 
After the end of the Cold War, many in Washington were reconsidering the humongous size of the military budget, which had converted the U.S. from the world's biggest lender into the world's biggest debtor. In an effort to balance the federal budget, politicians were beginning to trim back the, the Pentagon's toenails. After September 11th, all this changed. Bush and the Congress started to pump up the Pentagon's bloated budget without restraint. Even congressional opposition to the far-fetched missile defense program collapsed. Missile defense, like the war on terrorism, promises to protect Americans from danger while actually creating a much more dangerous world. If other countries think there is any chance the U.S. could block their missiles, they will feel vulnerable to U.S. attack. China has already promised to build more and better missiles, which could overwhelm the U.S. missile shield. This will spur a nuclear arms race in Asia. If China builds more nuclear missiles, then India will. If India does, then Pakistan will. If Pakistan does, etc. In 1972, the U.S. and the USSR signed the ABM Treaty to try to avoid this kind of arms race. In order to pursue missile defense, the U.S. unilaterally scrapped the treaty, but that didn't bother missile defense proponents. In this spirit, Congress rejected the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which has been signed by 164 countries, and it continues to finance nuclear weapons research and production. In fact, the Pentagon is eager to develop a new arsenal of small battlefield nuclear weapons. The U.S. is keeping enough nuclear firepower to wipe out most of humanity just to be safe. As potential nuclear targets in Russia have declined, the Pentagon has been retargeting its missiles at every reasonable adversary, which makes, up other, which makes other countries feel like they, are, they better hurry up and get nuclear weapons themselves. In the post-Cold War order, the U.S. does not seem to want to be bound by any arms treaties. It refuses to sign a new protocol to the 1972 Biological Weapons Treaty because it would require international inspections of its own biological weapons research facilities, where it is creating deadly new strains, including highly lethal powdered anthrax. U.S. officials say that they are only creating germ weapons in order to study how to defend against them. Of course, we would never use them ourselves. But can other countries trust a government that bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki and actually developed plans to use smallpox and other biological weapons against Vietnam and Cuba? Would you? And U.S. weaponized germs not only represent a threat to people in other countries, what if some of the Pentagon's powdered anthrax got in the hands of some fanatic here in the United States? During the Cold War, the Soviet Union was a serious military competitor for the United States. Today, the U.S. maintains a huge war machine despite the lack of any serious competition. The U.S. military budget is now larger than the next 25 biggest spenders put together. It makes up a full 36% of total global military spending. <laughs> wow. United States, $399 billion, with Russia coming in at second with $65 billion. Being the world cop and all, we do have certain responsibilities. <laughs> so, all right. I've only got some uh, brief amount of time left in this particular show. So, um, Chibi, did you have any comments on these chapters? Um, only that I would, I like how they kind of take the other angle. I mean, yeah, U.S. can be seen as a bad guy. I, I wouldn't say that any other country, if it were in our position, wouldn't do the exact same thing. But as far as Iraq goes, um, these bombings that we do see on the newspaper from time to time are not always, you know, it's not this terrorist thing. It's insurgents or whatever you want to call them that are just, I mean, they have no hope and they're sick of us being there and we're only making things worse. I mean, what do you expect them to do? So it, it's not this, you know, clandestine group that 
you know, in the shadows that's been plotting against us for years all the time, that people think like the Al-Qaeda and, and things like that. It's, uh, even if there were such a group, uh, I'm not necessarily saying there couldn't be, but a lot of these violent acts uh, that go on there have nothing to do with that anymore. I mean, we're just perpetuating a problem, making it worse and worse. That's pretty much it. Okay. Um, Emmanuel, what did you want to say? Uh, well, I have uh, two points. Uh, overall, when it comes to the because war is the subject and people making money from the war and the Venus Project and that taking the money out of the equation. Well, there's a, there's a, most, there's a small thing called the, the Constitution of the United States. And the de facto is, is, uh, fact that um, the income tax is illegal as far as the Constitution is concerned. So if we, if in general, if we can get everybody, or as the, the PJ was saying earlier, 100 million people from the U.S. can get them to stop paying taxes, I don't see Cheney pulling out money from his own pocket to go to war. They, they're not going to do it. If, if, the, if you bankrupt the government and there's no more federal government, and then there's no more money for for uh, inflated military, and then you can't go to war anymore, and you can't sacrifice not only the, the lives of the the, the the guys in Iraq and in, uh, in Afghanistan, it's those guys that come back mutilated or with major psychological problems. Now, the other issue is, in a normal world, Dick Cheney and maybe even George Bush, even though he was president, doesn't really matter. They would both be judged for either treason or murder. But this is not a normal world, and they're going to get away with it. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's, that's about it. Yep, and um, honestly, I think that uh, really it amounts to the fact that I don't think a lot of people really realize what goes into all this. Um, it was eventually so overwhelming that eventually even the mainstream media was coming down on Halliburton because of their ridiculous misspending. Um, there are really good documentaries that I show on Zeitgeist TV on a regular basis um, about this subject. I mentioned um, No End in Sight. There's also Why We Fight, a very good uh, movie on uh, war profiteering. Um, you want to understand more about the Middle East, I would watch Meeting, Meeting Resistance, where a couple of British journalists actually risk their lives to talk to um, Iraqi insurgents. Um, the Iraqi insurgents actually made a documentary about why they are fighting. Um, and it's, it's really hard, I mean, because I, I certainly don't want to see, you know, any troops getting killed, but I, I don't want to see anybody getting killed. After you really study war profiteering, you get to a point where it's hard for you to feel in any way that there is any good guy, because almost every time there's some idiot making money behind the, you know, the scenes who's basically exploiting both sides. I remember, and I've said this many times, um, recently there was that, that stuff going on in um, uh, Palestine where the Israelis bombed uh, some Palestinians, and uh, a lot of the people in my former Ron Paul were really up in arms about it, and I pointed out that it didn't really look any different to me than what happens when Palestinians visit out, you know, violence on Israelis. Everybody's a victim. Um, we're now down to the last minute or so of the show. I want to thank both of my panelists for being on, and I want to thank all of you for tuning into V Radio. 
Uh, please consider a donation at my MySpace, um, which is linked directly if you look up my uh, um, profile here on Blog Talk Radio. So thanks again uh, to Chibi and Emmanuel. Go ahead and say goodbye, guys. Thank you for the invite. No problem. Good being here. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, Bye, guys. I will talk to you guys. Uh, I'm actually, I'll still be on the call with you here in a minute. Um, because I'll just be disconnecting from Blog Talk. But uh, thanks again for everybody who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed the show. And please consider buying a copy of Addicted to War. Take care. <laughs>